Maisel Beauty Co. creates fuss-free products that work on every skin type using the finest quality, naturally derived ingredients, such as wild plum or bilberry seed oil. Like us, they share a passion for the transformative power of nature and they encourage their employees and customers to get outside to experience it as much as possible. There is a reason their mantra is naturally active. So today we're welcoming Celeste Hicks from Mums for Lungs and I've been admiring their campaign efforts. Everything that they're doing is really, really resonating for me. So I'll let Celeste introduce herself and then we can talk a bit more about your campaign. Hi, I'm Celeste. I'm from Mums for Lungs. Uh, I have two children, Lawrence and Ned. Lawrence is four and Ned's two. I, at the moment, am working as an environmental campaigner, but before that I was a journalist. So I'm juggling working, looking after my kids and trying to do something to make yeah. the world a better place. Your um, schedule must be absolutely packed, so I'm so grateful for you. <laughs> Quite, yeah. So I, I joined Mums for Lungs about two years ago when Ned was first born, when he was tiny. I was on maternity leave and I'd been feeling a little bit kind of lost about environmental issues and wondering if I was the only person who seemed to be freaking out about climate change and yeah. various other problems. And I saw a poster in a park mm-hmm. and I, I was just having a coffee in a park with my baby and I saw a poster saying, you know, are you concerned about air pollution? And it, it just was the perfect place at the perfect time. So that's how I come got to, to know Jemima and the other people from Mums for Lungs. And back then it was fairly organic and we just sort of had a meeting in Jemima's house with tea and biscuits and chatted and a lot of it was just kind of you know frustration and sharing experiences and stories but over the last two years it's just gone if if a campaign can go viral I guess a can a campaign go viral yeah it definitely Um, can so it's just taken off and we're just absolutely blown away by how much attention it's got I mean it's like you said at the start, it's like the right time, the right place, but also like a massive sense of urgency right now to do something like it before it gets to a tipping point, before it spirals out of our ability to make change happen. And and so I'm so glad that it's gone viral and, and, and thanks to you guys. So like it all started over a cup of tea and a biscuit. <laughs> And then, so what have you been doing recently then? I mean, I I know you've been working on um, school streets and I really want to talk about that. But what have you found that's like resonated with people the most? What's worked? We do loads of things. The main thing we're working on at the moment is a clean air street party, which is we've managed to get one of the roads in Herne Hill where some of us live. Oh, so you're South Londoners like me. Yeah, so um, we're getting a road outside Herne Hill Station closed for the clean, National Clean Air Day and we're just going to take over the road and play some games and do an awareness raising, yeah. um, giving out leaflets and that sort of thing. So that's at the moment taking over everybody's time and energy a lot of creative energy as well just trying yeah. to think how can we make this fun for people yeah. um, but we also do quite a lot of not very interesting stuff like sending emails and writing letters and responding to consultations I think because at the end of the day, we realised that although you can raise awareness and have a lot of chats, you know, heartfelt chats about how desperate you're feeling about these issues, someone's got to do something and probably it's the politicians, which are the people who should be doing something. So we're trying to think, Okay, we need to encourage people to just 
basically lambast their yeah. politicians with letters and emails until they just can't take it anymore and have to do something. I'm really struggling, I think, with my anxiety levels around climate action, climate breakdown, climate emergency, and wanting to do more, not knowing how to do more, and then also feeling like completely powerless because, or politics or big business or fossil fuel companies, like, unless they change, like, there's only so so much we can do. Um, do you think that we, through your efforts and through encouraging everyone to kind of, like, lambast their MPs, it will, you know, like, make... Theresa May, um, if she's still Prime Minister at that time, you know, change her targets from being 2050 to net zero um, carbon emissions, like by 2025 or 2020, uh, not 2020, that's next year, but, you know, like earlier, basically. <laughs> um, uh, we just have to hope so. I mean, yeah. I- I'd love to be able to say yes. Um, I mean, I think there has to be a certain amount of hope in all of this. And I mean, you know, we're talking specifically about air pollution and we're talking about the damage that we know that it's doing today to our children. And, you know, when the politicians come to us and say to us, you know, we're going to do this by 2030 or 2040, we're thinking, but our children are going to be teenagers and in their 20s by then, the damage is being done today. So, yes, I, I, I... we like to think that we can make a difference and sometimes we do try to step back and have a bit of an analysis of what we've achieved Mm -hmm. and you know there's absolutely no doubt that we've made a lot of noise and we get invited to talk at a lot of things and everybody seems to have heard about us um you know making a quantitative analysis of a definite impact is hard it's hard yeah i do think we just think that at the end of the day that if you know if politicians are inundated with people putting pressure on them to do these things then hopefully they will respond to that um because uh, you know what 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 are the other alternatives really i mean yeah. i think that's the problem yeah no it's true i remember reading something about how um i think uh, the Chancellor kind of reneged that this wasn't actually said. It was around how like it was going to cost like one trillion or something to kind of try and beat cl- climate um, breakdown. But it's like we don't really have any other choice, you know. Like we don't have a planet B, as you know that phrase that everyone keeps saying. So it just seems, you know, like we should throw all the money at it because actually, you know, what else? What's use for money if we have a burning scorched planet with, you know, no oxygen and no air to breathe? So let's try and bring ourselves up a little bit. Because it's quite easy to kind of get into that point where you do feel, um, I don't know, like overwhelmed, I guess. But um, the ULEZ ultra low emission zone, you guys have been involved in like helping to kind of consult on that, haven't you? So, yeah, we did loads of consultation responses to that when the mayor um, launched the consultation process we had like stock responses that we asked people to send if they didn't have a lot of time but we also kind of had advice and guidance on longer responses that people could write if they wanted to spend a bit more time and we know that when politicians receive responses to consultations they're more likely to consider them if they're all written in a slightly different way yeah so if they if they get a hundred responses that are all copied and pasted from each other they although they know they've got a hundred responses they tend to be more aware of them if people have put some time into it so we we focused on that Um, and then in the run-up to the launch of the ULES we were feeling that there was some backlash against the plans from 
small business owners and people in central London who who need to drive. Um, so we tried to have a social media campaign that was positive and saying that we really support the plans to kind of give the impression that it's not just a space for people to complain and, and push back against that. Actually, you know, the voice, positive voice saying this is a good step needs to be heard as well. Um, so, I mean, and we're, we're now sort of thinking about what we can do about the expansion of the ULEZ, which is ex- expected in 2021, mm. um, which will take it out to the north and south circular roads. We desperately need that. I mean, we agree completely. We're we're 100% behind it and we're now trying to figure out what can we do to support that happening. Um, Again, we're already hearing that people are starting to campaign against it and brief against it and things are popping into local media and London media that we've seen. Um, So we're just trying to think what we can do. Um, I mean, on that, like, we completely understand that it's difficult for people. We understand it's going to be expensive to change cars, um, but... You know, we're hoping hoping that we can push politicians to make sure that there are alternatives available for people, that public transport improves, that there could be a diesel scrappage scheme so yeah. that people can that get rid sense. of their old cars. Um, but I and think maybe it's public transport cheaper. Yeah. I mean, it's already pretty cheap in London, but um, I mean, compared to other, I know it's not cheap for people, for everybody, but compared to other cities in the UK, I mean, you know, my sister lives in Sheffield and it's £2.40 for a single bus journey. So, you know, it's a lot, it's it's already fairly good in London. Um, So, yeah, I mean, we we just trying to think what what can we do to start to just shift the, the debate on it so that it. Obviously, all the voices need to be heard, but just that, you know, you need to sort of get in early to try and start making people think perhaps in a slightly different way about it. One of the things that the concept of the ULE is that I really like as well is that there might be less cars on the road and therefore just safer also for children to be out and about because there's a lot of research to show that actually children spend less time outside than prison inmates. And... (laughs) It's quite... Not my kids. No. Because I kicked them out. But... <laughs> but, you know, like, children are stuck indoors more than ever. Yeah. And, you know, part of it is, like, safety concerns or, like, not knowing where to go, not not having the time, not being safe. It's like, how how can we help children spend more time outdoors? Like, I really love the idea of the play streets and things like yeah. that. It's like, how can we enable children to have their freedom again, which they, you know, like, our, maybe we had or our parents had when they were younger? Yeah, I mean, again, it's one of those things that the more you start thinking about it and reading about it and getting involved in a subject, the more you realise there's these like layers upon layers of historical traditions and ideas and mindsets that people have. And one of the things we've been looking at is um, some really interesting research about when the car took over the streets. Mm. And actually it was... uh, really quite early in the 20th century um, when a few of the motor companies that were producing the cars started advertising campaigns basically I guess a sort of like a PR early kind of prototype PR campaign to start to be blaming the pedestrians for getting in the way and not the car driver for having the accident so yeah right at the beginning apparently we were reading it was it was in America right at the beginning um it was always assumed to be the car driver's fault because pedestrians had always just walked all over the place because why would you bother checking to cross the road if yeah, there weren't any cars? why do you need a pedestrian crossing? Yeah. <laughs> so so it, at the beginning, if, if there was an accident, it was never the pedestrian's fault, whereas there was a deliberate campaign by the, the motor car industry to um, look at the way that insurance claims were made um, so that eventually 
you know, pedestrians could be seen to have been at fault for stepping out without checking the road. So that just starts thinking about just it's one of these, you know, like I was saying about the layers, it's just one of these things about how everything that we have become in our society today has kind of been shaped by this sort of addiction to fossil fuel and and growth um so in this particular instance it was like cars were making money people were making getting jobs from making selling cars um and therefore we've all been kind of ended up finding ourselves scared of cars and and feeling like it's our responsibility to stop getting hit by cars and we've all just accepted that as completely normal and and that's one of the things we really started feeling quite strongly when we're walking around with small children is why am I being made to feel as a mother absolutely on my wit's end scared when my child is cycling or scooting down a pavement that they're suddenly just going to accidentally trip or fall into the path of a car and you know I know parents who literally will hang on to their children's hands like you know almost rip them off because they're so scared about their kids running into the path of a car mm. and that you feel you feel the tangible fear coming off parents when they're walking around i'm i'm that i'm that parent yeah I think. and you're yeah. kind of thinking how is it that we have just all accepted this you know that actually you would sometimes people would look at that evidence and think well I'm going to drive my child to school because I don't want to feel that there's the danger of that accident you know that that's become normal and you know it's just this whole you know just unpicking all it all and thinking like how do we start again really like how do we completely rethink our our approach and and our relationship with cars yeah it's um it's fascinating just to hear some of the stories and like how you know, essentially, it's like we've been, it's been marketed to us, and we kind of, in a way, know no better. And like to change our perceptions of it is going to take, well, hopefully not too much time because we kind of need to change those perceptions now. But I wonder how, if automated cars and like the concept of less cars being on the road and, and them being, forced to stop algorithmically when there's children nearby I wonder how that will potentially change or enhance our cities have you yeah. thought about um you know like automated cars and things and how that could be either a good thing or a bad thing so I, I think that we haven't really thought so much about um automated cars yet um we've been thinking a little bit about electric vehicles which we do support um in terms of being cleaner yeah. on at least the no2 side of things but we do know that electric vehicles also still emit huge amounts of particulate matter almost i read one study recently it's, it's the same as a, as a normal car and also all so, the fossil fuels to make the car in yeah, the first place yeah and and if you we're talking about the relationship of yeah. us and the street yeah electric vehicles aren't going to do anything to change the way that we manage our street space um so you know we definitely would like to see a faster transition away from petrol and diesel engines but we would like to see a a bigger transition in the way that we just have the relationship with 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 the street space yeah and and the idea that you know instead of doing a five minute car journey like walking for 20 minutes you know is good for you not only physically but mentally and also helps you to connect with your environment and your surroundings and I think it's so easy especially as um, a parent and I've been guilty of it when I had it when my son was younger I think I was worried I wouldn't get a space on a bus you know it's just like these things that you know bus designers or (laughs) city public realm designers maybe they don't think what it would be like for a, a parent 
with a pram and how they get around the city and not like having like customer centric design for people who are perhaps marginalized or less abled or and like actually designing cities and streets for the people that aren't passive that actually live and breathe and interact in in their neighborhoods and designing it from from that perspective and I, I you know like I'm not surprised that parents might jump in a car and think it's easier because a they're not going to get their pram on the bus which was kind of my first point really yeah, yeah I mean again I I wish it I mean I don't have any time and you know a lot of my time is spent thinking what we're having for dinner so yeah you know I I often get halfway through these thoughts and then never finish them but I I've been wondering recently just about that conversation an internal monologue that happens when people have children because I saw it happen to to lots of my friends where they'd lived without cars when they were single and then even when they got married they didn't have cars and then when their first child came along within a few months they went and bought cars and it seemed completely natural and and even back then, although I was sort of already thinking about these issues, I didn't sort of think to even say, well, why do you need a car? Um, and when our second child came along, I think, you know, I did sort of have this thought like, oh, maybe we are going to have to have a car. But then we just never got one. Mm. Um, and I'm absolutely not saying it's easy mm. to not have a car. There are times where I just think I'm insane. I don't know why we don't have a car because, you know, we are the I am the mum whose mm. toddler is falling down the bus when it breaks when you know when it breaks suddenly and, yeah. and my two-year-old just won't sit down he's fallen over and <laughs> my four-year-old's fallen over and, and it's stressful <laughs> it's really stressful and like you say getting on the bus with a a, a push chair full of shopping yeah having to fold it up and then all your God, shopping falling out the nightmare. bottom it's like i've had all i've had it all um but even so i guess i just think well look you know if I just then say, well, the only answer is to get a car. But, you know, I, I'm just really interested in, in how that dialogue is playing out with people who previously hadn't had cars yeah, and didn't really see the need for one. Why something about having a, a child suddenly triggers that? Do you remember um, when you were told, like, you were going to go to hospital or, or maybe you had a home birth or whatever, uh, birth centre, and they were like, you can only take the baby home if you have a car seat? yeah. Like, yeah, like you wouldn't like, go home any other yeah, way. Yeah, like you wouldn't yeah. go. It was assumed. It's yeah. like, well, you can't leave the hospital without a car seat. And like, when you think about it, was it does that mean you need a car seat if you're getting the bus home? Yeah. Like, that, well, like, and like, I, I wonder if there's like, I don't know, I'm just speculating now. I wonder if there's like a seed sown in that point. It's like, well, I have a baby. I need to have a car seat. Yeah. Well, if I have a car seat, well, I need I mean, to have a car. It, yeah, I mean, there's all that stuff about buying stuff for kids, you know, when, you, when you're expecting a child. I mean, I was at the beginning in a fair amount of denial denial about being a parent so I didn't really want to engage in any way on buying anything and yeah. so if someone told me I needed something I was like yeah right, I'll just buy it and I just bought it and I didn't yeah. you know I know some people do lots of research and stuff but but yeah I think there's a lot of vulnerability around parents when they are you know first having children it's such a huge life shock um I think yeah possibly it, it, it comes from yeah. from that and I think it probably it. also just comes from the fact that it isn't very easy getting around with children. No, I think we need to explore all of these things. And actually, one of our members had a really great idea, which was to try and work with midwives and the hospitals to talk about air pollution when parents are when when mums are pregnant, and the health visitors to talk about air pollution because we all sort of agreed that there are, and, and I think it sort of bears itself out having had this discussion about cars. It's mm. like when you're going through a big change in your life 
life tends to be when you're sort of looking for information and trying to understand things. If at that point we were able to sort of say to people, look, actually, have you ever thought about air pollution? Because, you know, I had in a very general way, but, you know, what really shocked me was when I was told by my midwife that I had high levels of carbon monoxide in my system and she was sure it was because I cycled. And I remember thinking, well, you know, if if I was smoking five cigarettes a day, I would just stop smoking five cigarettes a day. But Mm. what do I do when I'm actually just breathing in toxic air and it's going straight into my baby's bloodstream? You know, Mm. that was terrifying. So we we thought, and it's something we want to work on in the coming months, to just try and look at those big life change times and see whether we can start a bit more of a conversation going. So instead of thinking, you know, instead of the instinct being, oh, I need to get a car because it's safer, actually then be the point where they go, do you know what, this is unacceptable to be bringing children up into this world. We need to change it and actually could go the other way. Yeah, and I think things like... I mean, I don't know if this is real. I think it is. But the whole stat about how it's more polluted inside a car than yeah, it is that, outside a car. That's yeah, true, That's isn't it? true, yeah. yeah. That's a research by King's College, um, their, their air quality unit at King's College in London. So, like, if that message was getting across, you know, that would put you off as a parent. yeah. Right. I mean, I, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I've yeah. said it to parents yeah, as well, same. and it and they they have kind of agreed. I don't know whether they've then thought, okay, I'll get. I mean, yeah. you know, this is the it's thing just because convenience, it's still, isn't it? It's and, well, it's still also you know, and a lot of places fairly unpleasant to walk. I mean, it yeah, is true. You know, like I, there's definitely you know horrible, polluted, busy roads yeah. where you're basically extremely nervous that your child's going to fall under a bus yeah. you know no it's very true so like we need to do both people need to change but you know the the, the system needs to change the politicians need to change things need to, it's Street it's got to be design a, needs to change yeah it's got to be a combination of of grassroots bottom up action and top down action i mean it can't be one or the other now as you may or may not know we have a walking app called go jointly And because one of our main aims in life is to try and encourage you to walk more and discover new places to visit, Shane from Go Jauntly is going to take us through his favourite walks each week. You can find out more on our website or you can download the app. But in the meantime, Shane, what have you got for us today? Hi, Hannah. Today is a variation of one of my favourite London walks. It's called the Vauxhall Pleasure and Rooftop Heaven. It's in the app now. And so many people pass through Vauxhall every day on the bus or the train. It's a really popular commuting spot, but don't even realize about the cool sort of hidden gems that are right around the corner. Uh, One of my favorite residential squares in London is there, Bonington Square. It's got this amazing history of squatters who took it over, I think, in the 80s, and they made it big effort to just plant all these amazing plants throughout the square. So it's this really green jungle-esque square uh, right around the corner from Vauxhall. There's also Vauxhall Park, which is lovely, especially in the summer when the lavender's in bloom. They also have Vauxhall City Farm right there, which is an amazing little farm they use for education and different purposes. But they have alpacas, they have sheep, they have chickens, and it's a lot of fun just to go look at all the different animals. So my recommendation would be the Vauxhall Walk. Thanks so much, Shane. We're just going to go back to the podcast interview now. And it is really great to, you know, hear that people are doing things about it like yourselves. We've spoken to Dan Raven Ellison, who was kind of spearheading this whole concept of like National Park City and changing the way we interact with our city and we understand our city and we move around our city. And and it's happening. I just kind of wish like we could 
fast forward a little bit to the point where it's is you know it's actually happening you can see it happening right around you and there's this feeling of like I don't know momentum or something because it still feels like I still feel a little bit powerless at the moment and I think I, I, I want to do more and and I guess this is one of the reasons why we we're doing the podcast as well because we want to have these conversations with people which I guess leads me nicely on to like do you guys have any other sort of practical tips on like how your everyday person can reduce their contribution to air pollution? Yeah, I mean, there are lots of things that people can do. I mean, number one is think about every car journey that you make. Um, I mean, we've had a lot of discussion about this as a group and and I'm I'm not sure there's anybody who's getting into the car just for fun. Um, (laughs) Not anymore. (laughs) I mean, no, I mean, when I was a kid, my dad used to just take us out for a drive in the car, you know, like... Yeah, we used to do that too. (laughs) But, you know, I I don't think anyone in London's taking a kid out in a car for fun anymore because it's not fun. Maybe to get them to sleep, I remember. Well, that, yeah, I mean, you know, is that... um, Anyway, you know, let's not go down there. But, like, I mean, just, yeah, stuff like if it's less than a mile or two miles, can you walk? Can you make a fun activity or outing from the walk to do whatever you need to do a lot of the time we you know we we're so pushed for time that we have to do everything you know in and you know we end up prioritizing doing things quickly over doing things in a fun way yeah, so slowing down and yeah, taking the scenic route a little bit and sometimes like you know we will go and do our shopping on foot in the pushchair it's really annoying and it takes for ages but yeah. the kids enjoy it the kids enjoy the walk to the shop they yeah. enjoy going in and out of different shops and and so you know it's it's just sometimes just thinking about things like that um home deliveries uh are a problem because uh people are getting deliveries all the time um and vans are obviously sometimes in lots of places in london you know delivery vans will circle several times on around a block because they can't find anywhere to stop Mm. or they'll stop in the road and leave the engines running while they go to deliver things um so what you can do on that is to group your deliveries into one so rather than sort of getting everything as you know if you're doing amazon whatever getting everything as quickly as possible try and group them into one delivery another thing you can do is to use the amazon lockers or the local post office for delivery in that way um you know the, the driver is going to go to one location with everybody's parcel instead that's of that's a really good idea I yeah so actually that. well we've actually there's some research I, I can't remember who did it now but there is some research that says you know it's actually the last mile of the journey which is the one that could cause a problem so if the van is coming from say you know the delivery office in central london and coming down to brixton and dropping at brixton if it then goes off around Brixton for another hour going around different people's streets and dropping stuff off you could cut all that pollution if everybody just walked to the collection centre so there's things like that you can do Um, I mean another thing that we don't get to talk a lot about and we want to talk a little bit more about is, is wood burning stoves um, because I, people use I'm those glad you a lot. Said that. Yeah and you know they do cause a lot of air pollution Um, you know they've been touted as carbon neutral Um, so that's why a lot of people like to use them but they do cause a lot of localised air pollution. So. Inside as well? Yeah. I don't yeah. think that's very well known is it? That- uh I, I don't know. No. I mean, you know, we, we we know that people have an attachment to open fires. Everybody loves an open, open yeah. fire. I love an open fire. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's again that sort of idea of, you know, is it something that you do as a special treat or are you literally heating your home every day with, with wood? Um, and that's, that's a, lo- a, a high source of localised air pollution. 
I have been trying to pluck up the courage to approach drivers <laughs> who are idling their engines, and at the moment I just sneer at them. Um, but I don't think it's very effective. Like, how? What's the best way to sort of say to someone? Like, do you mind turning your engine off because it's actually really bad for the environment? Or like, what, what's what's the best thing to say? Because I'm gonna I'm gonna try and do this. Yeah, I mean it, it's really hard, yeah. and we have some members in our network who are really, really, really good at it, and they like doing it. And they do like a little uh, YouTube video. Yeah, and they, <laughs> and they go us. out and they do it all the time. And and some of us are always saying to them, "How do you do it?" Because others in our group find it really hard. I personally find it really hard, and I go through phases of taking our idling leaflet out and giving them out and then just sort of shying away from it and then reporting them to the Southwark idling hotline because I can't go and have the conversation um, it is, it's it's a really uncomfortable um, situation, I don't think, you know some people can just ride that situation out, personally mm. I find it difficult um, I mean it. we have found that having the flyers helps because we've found that people kind of stop, look, see oh, that yeah, you're giving them like something. It's like a break it, isn't it? Yeah, it kind yeah. of breaks the eye contact, it's yeah. sort of it can be seen as a friendly mm-hmm. exchange as opposed to you know knocking on the window and being yeah. a bit aggressive Yeah. Um, I generally find it's easier to do it if I've got the children with me because you know there's not that many people will refuse to turn off if you've got a small child with you um, and I mean but like I say yeah you'll, you'll, you'll often get people arguing back saying oh well you know I'm charging my phone or I'm just looking up where I'm going or you know I've got the heater on or something like that um, you know at that point I then sort of tend to just walk away because you know it I don't want to, to kind of get frustrated. Um, so I mean, there... we, we'd like to we'd like to see proper um, idling awareness campaigns. Yeah. We'd like to see official people doing it. Well, I mean, one thing that I don't think anybody in our network's done this, but we've kind of heard of people doing it and it being really successful is to just wear a high vis jacket, and then someone sees you in a high vis jacket and thinks, oh, you know, this person's really serious, so I'm going to do what they say. Like they did in was it Walthamstow or somewhere like that? Yeah, yeah, I've just heard anecdotal evidence that yeah, if you approach somebody with a high vis jacket on, they automatically think that you are somebody <laughs> who can tell them to, to turn off. Um, I mean, you know, we've we've all had so many confrontations. I mean, I had a confrontation. Um, with some taxi drivers in front of the police and you know I went to a policeman and said you know it's illegal to idle can you tell him to turn off his engine and he you know the policeman wouldn't do it either and I'm standing and thinking well it's illegal to idle yeah. you're just seeing him do it and you know and I'm asking you to do something and that yeah. was you know and then everyone ended up shouting in that situation so it feels like it's then, not it's not easy yeah no it doesn't sound easy and I think I'm still need to pluck up the courage maybe do you have like the leaflets online that you can download yeah and print? so we've we've just actually launched our new website which is www.mumsforlungs.com org um, and on that website yeah you can download our idling flyers we've also got um, letters for teachers for about school streets yeah I want to um, ask you about which, that which can tell you, you know if you're a parent who's trying to campaign for school streets gives you a template letter so we can you can find all those resources on the website so can you tell us a little bit more about school streets yeah school streets is, is one of the main things we've been campaigning on lately and it's the idea that um, the space around schools at drop off and pick up time should be sacred um, which, you know, when we first started looking into it, we thought, 
okay, this this sounds quite radical. You know, you're going to tell people they can't drive to school. And, you know, we thought, how, how are we going to campaign on this? This was about a year ago that we got involved in it. Um, and since then, we've actually found out that the last count was a, a few days ago that 38 schools have committed to it wow. in London since last year. Um, so we realise, again, like talking about this zeitgeist idea that people are starting to listen and the, the, the conversation is moving in. We're realising that actually maybe it's not completely radical to say, you know what, don't drive outside school so that kids can cycle and walk and scoot there and not, A, not be terrified they're going to get knocked over, B, not have to walk behind an idling engine, you know. And not get beeped in. out the way like I saw yeah. outside my school the other day. I was just yeah. like unbelievable yeah so so i mean basically the if if parents want to campaign for school streets what they need to do is to contact the local authority or the school um and try to get a school streets trial um we think at the moment that there's massive appetite from it for the councils that they're really really keen on it um so if you can get a group of parents together at the school who all feel the same way as you which i don't think there's many parents that actively enjoy being in the middle of that foray every morning um so yeah you can get other parents to together um, approach the head teacher and say you'd like to find out more about it and then you can approach the council and see if they'll do a trial okay and um, basically what happens is they will put either bollards or cameras up to stop cars going past for just for half an hour in the morning while the kids are arriving and half an hour in the afternoon so it's not a full full-scale road closure it's just during school drop-off times it makes perfect sense yeah and, and the feedback we've had as something like one of the schools in in eltham did it had a 54 percent drop in the number of car journeys to wow. the school so you know it, 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 it is working maybe it's one of those things that you only need to do for a short while for it to just change behavior that's what we're starting to think might be you know because we were actually talking to lambeth council and they said to us oh well you see the problem we're facing is how do we police it in the long run you know because we're getting parents to stand on the bollards and tell drivers they can't come down the road. And, you know, they're only going to do that for a few weeks. And we said, well, why are you asking parents to do that? I mean, A, put some cameras in so that no one has to literally stand at the end of the, drove, at the, end of the road and shout at drivers for driving. But also we started to wonder whether, yeah, once people have got the message once or twice, they're just going to start respecting it. And, mm. you know, actually, maybe you don't even need any enforcement if it just becomes acceptable and a norm that actually that space around schools should be safe. Yeah, no, I think that's a brilliant idea. And um, you've got like a, a handbook, haven't you, or something like that that parents can access? Is that on the website? Yeah, it's on our website. Um, it's basically some downloadable resources, which is a, letter, a letter to the school, a letter yeah. to the head teacher explaining what School Streets is. Um, and yeah, we've got lots of information about how to go about getting one implemented and some case studies of where it's happened and Perfect. worked really well. So. Yeah, it's the evidence sometimes that schools need, isn't it? And, and like you say, like enough parents gather together to like hound them into action yeah because I think I think being armed with evidence will make me feel a bit more comfortable about approaching people to kind of turn their engines off and yeah um give me the confidence I think I'd, I'd need and I what I was going to say is it feels like um I've been thinking about this for a while how we need like a public health campaign around air pollution yeah. you know like we had around smoking or you know, AIDS in the 80s and things like that. So it feels like it's like, you know, it's we're in a dire situation. Air pollution is really bad. There are five things that you can do to help reduce it. These are the five things. And then and it's, you know, like a public health campaign. Yeah. It feels like we really, really need something like that. So I hope someone's wor working on something somewhere. Do you think? I mean, TfL, I've done quite a lot on yeah. it. You know, there's, there was a campaign about two years ago of, you know, the picture of the baby's bottle with like yeah. black dust floating was, in it. That was grim. 
you know so they they have been doing like it you know you do see it you do see it at bus stops yeah. but in some ways when you see it at a bus stop it's kind of the wrong audience because the people at the bus stop know how polluted it is mm-hmm. um yeah i mean we've been doing things like handing out leaflets in kids school bags and stuff yeah, so maybe like it. parents might read the stuff that's come from school or yeah. you know yeah. but you know somebody said the other day like a uh, politician who was at a debate at the House of Lords got in touch with us and said you know basically I read this transcript of what he said and he said why is it being left to kind of a group of volunteer mums to go around and tell people to turn their engines off like why why is this you know if that's not like a, a sort of indictment of like the lack of political will at the moment to tackle this then you know there's nothing else is there you know so we you know I I, I was really struck by that comment because it made me think yeah like why like why am I putting myself in this position yeah, to do something that is actually to stop people doing something that's illegal yeah. unnecessary and is actually making us all sick and warming the planet it's like yeah. why is that my responsibility you know god there's so much on your shoulders but <laughs> I would <laughs> I want to give you a hug now. Um, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much, though, for everything that you're doing. And it would be really great to be able to keep in touch because I'd like to try and help share your message um, with the work that we're doing at Go Jauntly. And I think it's it's really important in like organisations such as ourselves. You know, we're self-funded and we, we're just trying to help people walk more because of the health and wellness benefits, but also because of things like air pollution and climate change. And so, like, if there's anything that we can do, you know, like, please let us know and we'll we'll try and help because it's so important. And I really appreciate you coming in. I know you've got a busy schedule and you have to run off and pick up your kids. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. I really enjoyed chatting to Celeste Hicks and it made me think about all of the gear we had or felt like we need to lug around when my son was younger and why the car trip was always the first choice for travelling. I regret that now. And now he's older, he's definitely easier to travel by train with and we often go and see relatives that way now. The car is becoming more and more redundant. I'm definitely going to look into school streets on the Mums for Lungs website after this. There's lots of opportunity here, so hopefully everyone will check that out as well. Coming up in the next episode, we'll be talking to Will Norman, London's first ever walking and cycling commissioner. I really hope you've enjoyed this show as much as we have. If you have any suggestions for guests or topics to cover, then please do get in touch at hi at gojauntly.com. For more information about the show, visit gojauntly.com forward slash nature bants. This podcast was brought to you in partnership with Liz Earl Beauty Co., Find out more about Lizelle Skincare over at lizelle.com.